In his article titled Longing for More from Psychology Today, PhD Dr. Andy Tix, uh, he, he opens with a question. What do you really want? He says it's a difficult but essential question. And, and some of you may hear that, well, that's not really difficult at all. Maybe you immediately had an answer. I know, you know, for my wife and I, like Josh said, we just had uh, our son who was our third child just about three weeks ago. So, you know, my immediate answer, my wife's immediate answer, we would like some more sleep, you know? We could definitely use an extra wink or two. However, some of you might have thought more deeply about it than that. I mean, you know, a couple of extra hours of sleep would be great and all that, but, but maybe you thought about the bigger picture of life. What do I really want? And if we're honest, I think that's a really tough question. I mean, no matter where your mind went when, when we asked that, I, I think I believe that it's a question that we ask ourselves all the time. And if we're honest, you know, really, really difficult to, to come down, what is the answer? What do I really want out of life? What, what do I want? What do I really, really want? Well, in German, they have a word called Zenzuk. And forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that. I took Spanish and I still don't know Spanish. Uh, so I'm definitely not good with German. But there's not really a good or easy or simple English translation for this word. So, thank, so thankfully, Dr. Tix helps describe it for us. He says this. Zenzuk has to do with an intense desire for something that's beyond our human capacity to fulfill. It's a sense that something is missing. Something that if fulfilled, it would make everything complete. Season Zook is a deep yearning, a deep longing that we, can, that we experience all the time in our soul that we can never really seem to satiate, never seem to satisfy. I mean, think about it. What was something that you wanted? I mean, maybe it was to get into the right school, or maybe it was to have the right friends or people around you, or maybe it was to get the right job, or maybe to make X amount of dollars, or maybe it was to find the right spouse or buy the right house. And, and here's the reality, one of two things happened. You either didn't get that thing and therefore it didn't satisfy you, or you got it and eventually reality set in that it's not enough. It didn't satisfy the zenzuk, the yearning, the longing. C.S. Lewis describes it like this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, when we first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that really excites us, these are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And I'm not now speaking of that which would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. He's not saying we're talking about the bad marriages, bad trips, bad things don't satisfy. He says, actually, I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something that we, we grasped at in the, the first moment of longing and it just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. I mean, the wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, although I would disagree, but something has evaded us. See, Lewis is getting at the core of our problem that we're gonna talk about today, the problem that our souls are starving, but we settle for food that doesn't satisfy. Our souls are starving and we settle for food that doesn't satisfy. Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter three. He says, for I've often told you, and now I say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is their destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. See, Paul knew that we as people, we look to things of this earth, things of this world to satisfy us and that we allow our stomach to be our God. What does he mean by that? We allow that, man, if that thing is going to taste good or feel good, then it has to be good. We allow our stomach to be our true north of kind of our compass that guides our life. And when we do that and we allow those things to kind of be the things that we're searching for and longing after, then not only are they going to come up short, but he says they're gonna to lead to our destruction, our ruin. John Mark Comer, a pastor in Seattle, says this in his book, Live No Lies. He says, giving in to the desires of our flesh, it does not lead us to freedom in life as many people assume, but instead to slavery, and in the worst case scenario, addiction, which is a kind of prolonged suicide by pleasure. When we live this way, when we look among the earth to satisfy our yearning, to satisfy the zenzukt of our soul, and it doesn't satisfy, it leads to a type of slavery where we just are searching and searching and searching and we can't escape that cycle. And what we might initially think or, you know, or regard as something that's not that bad, it becomes an addiction. And, and it's not just a drug or an alcohol addiction that we typically kind of think of with that word, but kind of any and all addiction to any and everything that we could be running after in this life. And the reality is that whatever it is, it will ultimately lead to a prolonged suicide by pleasure. And I know that's heavy. However, I think we can learn a lot from this zenzuk, this longing of our soul that can't be filled. And I think what it can do is it can begin to move us from a place to where we are living totally dissatisfied and where we cannot seem to get out of this cycle to a place where we are truly finding the thing that finally satisfies our soul. Blaise Pascal, he was a mathematician, philosopher, theologian, pretty much did it all in the 1600s. He said this, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness? At one point in time, we were complete. We didn't have this longing and yearning. We had it, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. C.S. Lewis puts it a little more simply again in mere Christianity when he says that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We were made for another world. But, but here's the, the thing is that before all of these guys penned these thoughts, Jesus addressed this very need in our soul in John chapter six. And that's where we're continuing our series face to face this morning. We're gonna be looking at this interaction between Jesus and all these people and religious leaders and his disciples. And he kind of performs this crazy miracle. And then they have this fascinating conversation about the miracle. And I think we can learn a lot from it. So let's open up John chapter six. We're gonna start right in verse one. 
And John says, after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. And after this is kind of an indefinite phrase in the Greek. It means kind of like from the end of chapter five to the beginning of chapter six, it wasn't necessarily the next day. And we learned from the other gospel accounts that it was actually about six months had passed at this point in time. Verse three, Jesus went up on a mountain, sat down there with his disciples now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. And it's interesting to note that this is actually the second of three recorded Passovers that we have in the gospel that included Jesus. And so we know because of the Passovers that his ministry lasted about three years. And we know that because this is the second one, this is about a year before he went to the cross. Verse 5. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do, Jesus. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to have a little. Now, I'm not sure if you're up on the exchange rate between the dollar and the denarii, uh, but in case you're not, Dr. Edwin Blum helps us out. He says, one denarius was the wage for a day's work. So one day's work. Even if the bread had been available, The disciples did not have nearly that much money. So it's about, he's saying we need about 200 days worth of work. That's about eight months. So to put it in terms that I think could help us understand, in West Virginia, the medium household income is about $50,000, just shy of that in 2020. So about eight months worth of that work would be about $40,000. And he's saying, man, that's not even enough so that everybody could have a little. So minimum $40,000 to feed these people. In verse eight, it continues and it says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, hey, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And I wanna stop for just a second because I think what can happen For those of us who have grown up in church or been in church a long time, or we've read this story a lot, we've heard it a lot, I think we can tend to focus on this little boy and his lunch. But when we do that, what happens is we cheapen the story. Because the story's not about the little boy. The story uh, shouldn't be kind of all focused on him. Because the story should, all the focus and the center of the story should be on Jesus. Because that's what the story is about. And that's what the Bible is about. And that's what life is about. And it's not that the little boy didn't play a part in the story, but the part that he played was the, the, the part of not having enough, not being good enough, not able, not able to give to meet the need that was there. And it's in the boy's weakness that the stage is set for Jesus' power, his glory, and his compassion to be on display. And the same is true, I think, when we make the focus of the story of the little boy, we rob Jesus of that, of his power and his glory and his compassion. So this morning, we're going to focus on Jesus. In verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and so they sat down, and the men numbered about 5,000. And that's just the men, so it probably was about 15,000 people in total, including men and women. And we learn in Mark's account of this story, uh, excuse me, that they grouped them in about 50 or 100 so they could count easily, so they could kind of understand the situation. How many people do we exactly need to feed? And so they've done that, and Jesus is sitting here with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish that the little boy has given him. And in verse 11, it says this. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, 
as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. And they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. And I would say that's pretty incredible, but that's probably an understatement. I mean, we're talking about what Jesus did here. He took what was essentially nothing. It wasn't enough lunch to feed him and his closest buddies. And then he fed 15,000 people with it. I mean, essentially, he kind of made food come out of thin air. He multiplied, took food, what was essentially nothing, made it something. And there are some vital details to the account here that John provides. The first one, he says that they ate as much as they wanted. And that there were also 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And John includes these because he wants to let us know that what Jesus did wasn't just, wasn't symbolic. It wasn't a metaphor. They weren't kind of, you know, lying or making this up. He's saying this actually happened. Or we didn't just kind of chop up all these things into little cubes and everybody shared and had a little bite. No, they ate and they were full. There was a plenty, plenty for them to eat. And here's the thing is I, I just want to acknowledge for a moment, there might be some of you sitting there or listening to this and, and you might think, man, that sounds kind of ridiculous. Like, do you hear what you're saying at all? Do you really believe that? Do you expect me to believe that? And, and to the question, you know, if I believe it, I, I would say, yes, I do. And to be honest, for me personally, it's, it's not that big of a leap. It, it's kind of easy for me to believe, but that's because that I believe that God is the creator of all, that he created everything from nothing and that Jesus was his agent of creation. And so if God created everything from nothing, Surely it's no problem to make a little bit of fish to feed 15,000 people. That's not really a tall task for someone who's the creator of all. And unfortunately, we don't really have the time to kind of dive into all the reasons why we at the Ridge believe that. But we have had series in the past where Pastor Tim has explained those reasons, and we will surely do new series in the future. But I would encourage you, if you're someone you know, who's really curious and, and you don't want to wait or go searching through archives for the videos, please talk to us. We would love to have that conversation with you. Back in verse 14, we pick up the end, of the end of this part of the story. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said that this is truly the prophet who's come into the world. And so what the people saw, it reminded them of something that Moses had said in Deuteronomy 18 when he was leading God's people. And here's what he said. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers and you must listen to him. See, Moses was telling the people something really important that one day there's going to be a prophet that's going to come and he's really speaking about the Messiah, someone who's going to save Israel and he's going to be like me. And here there are a lot of similarities between Jesus and Moses in this instance. See, Moses was called by God to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt over to the land that he had promised, a land flowing with milk and honey. But in between those two places, they were in the wilderness wandering for 40 years and mostly because they continue to turn their back on God, yet God is graciously allowing them to continue and be there with them. But as they're wandering for 40 years, God feeds them. He provides manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And so they're seeing, okay, Moses was the leader of the people. He set us free, bringing us to the promised land. And when he was in charge, God was giving us food from heaven. And this Jesus guy, about a millennia later, is kind of giving us, he's feeding us. He's kind of filling that need, the same one that Moses did. So they're making this connection between Moses and Jesus. Here's how, uh, here's, here's how we, we see it continue in verse 15. 
Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And this is interesting because it's kind of the apex, the high point of Jesus's popularity. The people were coming to make him king because they thought they were making this connection. They, man, this guy is the one that Moses was talking about. He's the prophet to come and to save us. And so he's going to become our earthly physical king and he's going to save us from Rome. But it's interesting because Jesus, as he often did, he, he knew some things. And one of the things he knew that that wasn't his mission to come and be an earthly physical king to save them from Rome. He was coming to be a different kind of king. So that's not the mission that he was on sent by God. And secondly, he knew it wasn't time for his mission to finish yet. He knew he still had another year of ministry to do before that point. So what did he do? As he always did, I love how it mentions here, John says again, he withdrew to be by himself in the mountain to be with God to pray. It's really a neat theme of Jesus's life, withdrawing to be with God. The next day, Jesus' disciples, uh, his closest buddies, they were over on the other side of the sea, and we pick the story back up in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Here we see Jesus again addressing uh, our, our problem today. Let's look at it one more time. Our souls are starving, but we settle for food that doesn't satisfy. Why did the crowd come looking for him? Well, last night they were hungry. They gave him something to eat. They were filled. The next morning they're hungry again and they're looking again, not for Jesus, but for what Jesus can give them. They weren't working for food that lasts. They were working for food that perished. They were starving and they were settling for something that was not gonna truly satisfy them. They were settling for earthly and physical things rather than looking for the truth that the sign that Jesus had did was pointing them to. Because that's what signs do, right? You're driving down the highway, a sign will tell you, hey, there's a gas station coming up. It points to something that's coming. And that's what this miracle was. Jesus actually did it, but it's also a sign pointing to something deeper that he was talking about. In verse 28, the people then go on to ask Jesus, well, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he sent. And believe in the Greek is the word pistuo, and it means to believe, to trust, to rely on. And it's related to the same Greek noun for faith, pistis. The CSB study Bible notes that John preferred the verb form of this word to emphasize the act that is necessary for someone to be saved. And what act is that? The act is a total dependence on the work of another. It's funny that Jesus says this is a work we need to do is to believe because Jesus is kind of using this wordplay of work because the only work that we can do to be saved is to rely on the work that he's done for us because there's no work that we can do outside of trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross. But it's interesting, after he says this, the people start to have doubts in verse 30. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness just as it is written. He gave them bread 
from heaven to eat. And so, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read this, it's kind of confusing. It's an odd question to ask, to ask Jesus for a sign. I mean, they all just witnessed this miracle last night. They saw him do an incredible sign. But the reason they're asking is, right, they're making that comparison between Moses and Jesus. And they're making this comparison. And as they're doing that, they're not just comparing the two, but they're saying that, hey, Jesus, your miracle, it was cool and all, but like it didn't really kind of touch the dirt on Moses' sandals. Like Moses fed us in the wilderness for 40 years. You gave us one meal. Like we're going to need a little bit more than that to really trust you. You need to step up your game if you want us to believe. And here's how Jesus responded to that. I love this. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, Jesus addresses a couple problems with their thinking. First, he lets them know, hey, this, it wasn't Moses that was feeding you. It was God. Don't get it twisted. God was the one that was feeding you. Moses was kind of just the guy that was there. And second, God is doing something different. God's not just wanting to give you physical bread. He's wanting to give you the true bread from heaven. And then they say, well, okay, that sounds great. We would love that. Please, can you give it to us? Where can we find this true bread? And it's funny, the similarities between last week when Tim was talking about the Samaritan woman, right? And they're at the well and she's drawing water and Jesus says, hey, if you come here, you know, you got to get water every day because you're going to be thirsty, but I've got living water. She's like, okay, that sounds great. You don't have a bucket, but I would love to have that. And, and again, right, she was focused on the physical. She thought there was going to be an actual drink that she wouldn't have to drink water again. And these people think there's going to be actual physical bread that's going to make them be never hungry again. They're missing the point. But Jesus didn't want them to miss the point. And I don't want you to miss the point today either. So thankfully for us, he spells it out super clearly in the next verse in 35. Sir, give us his bread always. And he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. You know, I think about the times in my life when, when things haven't gone well. And those are really easy times to see that those things didn't satisfy, right? Like maybe the thing I wanted, I didn't get it, I didn't get into the right school or didn't get the right job or whatever, and very easy to see that it didn't satisfy. But even as I think about the times in my life when I have kind of gotten all the things I've wanted, I still feel it at the end of the day as, as I'm laying in bed and trying to fall asleep and it kind of can't escape me, man. Is this really all there is to life? Is this, is this really all there is? Is this really, am I really getting what I want or is there something more? I think that's kind of a reality that we all face. And here's the thing, you know, when we hear this, when I hear this offer, this, hey, there's a bread of life and it will satiate you in a way that you will never be hungry again and you will never be thirsty again. I don't know about you, but that, that's an offer I can't refuse. I can't turned down. I mean, the manna only sustained the Israelites for 40 years. The food that Jesus gave them the night before kept them full for the evening, but they're hungry again. But Jesus Christ, the bread of life will sustain and satisfy you for eternity. He says this in verse 47, truly, I tell you, anyone who believes, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And I love how Dr. Warren Wearsby, what he says about this, he says that when Jesus called himself the living bread, he was not claiming to be exactly like the manna, he was claiming to be even greater. The manna only sustained life for the Jews, but Jesus gives life to the whole world. The Jews ate the daily manna and eventually died, but when you receive Jesus Christ within, you live forever. When God gave the manna, he gave only a gift, but when Jesus came, he gave himself. There was no cost for God in sending the manna each day, but he gave his son at a great cost. The Jews had to eat the manna every day, but the sinner who trusts Christ once is given eternal life. And all of that, what he's describing, is only possible because of the cross, because Jesus' mission wasn't to come be a physically earthly king, but it was to come down and to die in our place for our sin, because our relationship with God is broken because of that, and the debt has to be paid, and the debt is life and blood, and so we deserve that punishment, the wrath of God, but thanks be to God that Jesus came down so he could die in our place for our sin, so that we could be back in the right relationship with God that we were created for in the beginning. It's the thing that we've been longing for. And it's the only way that we can escape this feeling and escape this longing and this yearning desire. It's only possible because of the cross and what Jesus did. These people were looking to be fed physically each and every day. They were working for food that perished. They were settling for food that didn't satisfy. And what Jesus was trying to say to them was I don't want to just feed you physically. I want to nourish your soul for eternity. Check out how they respond in verse 66. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer accompanied accompanied him. Most of the people that were there left. They didn't want that. They wanted to be fed. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, here's the truth. You've been invited, invited to dine at the table with the King of Kings, with the creator of all, and you got a choice. You can continue to go on searching for your whole life, looking for the thing that is gonna fill the void inside you, looking for the thing that's finally gonna stop the longing, looking for it to finally be enough, the next house, the next job, the next person, the next amount of money, the next zero in my bank account. And you can do that and you can be enslaved to that cycle or you can choose to come and give up searching because freedom is found at the Savior's table. See, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to sit at his table and to feast on the bread of life. I love what Jesus says in John 17, three, he says that eternal life is this, that we know God, that we know him in this intimate and deep relational way in the one that he has sent. And for some of you, and this might be the first time 
that you're starting to put these pieces together and seeing your need for something greater, for something that this world can't offer for Jesus. And for you, our our encouragement is is to trust him. That total dependence, that faith, that ultimate relying on his work, not your own work. Because it's his work that offers us eternal life. And the thing that's cool about eternal life is it's not just about the quantity. It's not just that it's forever. It's the quality of life as well. Jesus says in John 10, 10, I've come that you may have life and have it full, have it abundantly. It's the better way. It's the better life. It's the good life, the life with Jesus as we feast at his table. For those of us in the room, though, who have already placed our faith in Christ, I think something can happen. You know, we can sit at his table. We can have our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. But there's a whole lot of stuff going around us. There's all kinds of distractions. There's all kinds of things that, that might make us and tempt us to step away from the table and to begin again to look and search on things of this earth for something that will satisfy that. And, and rather than sitting here and feasting with Jesus, we just take it to go cup. We just treat God like a drive-through. Man, I, I read my verse this morning, I'm good for the day. You know, and we don't realize that God isn't just inviting us into this relationship just so that we can have life for eternity, but he wants us to have life fully. And that full life is found when we sit at this table and we dine with the king and we enjoy the feast of the bread of life. So will you think about that? Will you admit that deep longing and yearning as you're lying in bed at night and and come to the Savior's table? It's where freedom is found. If you do that, he will save you and he will satisfy you forever. We're going to take a moment to put into practice something that Jesus and his disciples talked about about a year later, the night before he was going to die. He again continues this picture of being the bread that we so desperately need. And he he takes some bread and he he gives thanks and he breaks it. He says, eat this, it's my body given for you. He takes the cup, holds it up, give thanks to God. And he, he says, drink this, this is my blood, the blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of sin. There's another picture of us for how trusting in Jesus and who he is and what he did is the only way to be right with God and the only way to be saved for eternity and the only way to have abundant, full life, free from longing, free from searching, free from striving to fill that void. I'm going to pray here in a second. And after I do that, you can feel free to take communion as you're ready. God, we just thank you for this day. Thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you, God, that we were created, intentionally designed to be in a right relationship with you, a loving and intimate relationship with you, God. That's what we were created for. Because of our sin, though, it gets in the way of that. Because of this fallen world and our nature, we are always striving to fill that void with something else. God, you're the only thing that can do it the thing we were designed for. And we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, that he came down and like Moses, he was an agent of feeding the people physically to give us a sign to see how we need to be fed spiritually. We thank you that he made all of this possible through his obedience and death on a cross. 
in our place, in our sin, the death and penalty and punishment that we deserve. He took it all so that we could be back in a right relationship with you, feasting at the table on the bread of life. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.